everyone. Welcome to the Farm Commons podcast, where we explore timely and important legal issues and questions facing the farming community today. For community-based farms with a focus on sustainability, managing legal risks is especially important, as many innovative farm enterprises, like community-supported agriculture programs, on-farm suppers, and gardening classes, and unique arrangements for land access and employment do not fit neatly into our legal system, leading to vulnerability. But through legal education, we can cultivate greater resilience for your farm business so that you can continue to grow in ways that best support you, your relationships, and your community. At Farm Commons, we'll show you why and how. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Farm Commons podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about land and farmland specifically. Of course, this is Farm Commons after all. And we'll be exploring how land is accessed and strategies to achieve social justice through non-traditional land access, legally speaking. And so this conversation is actually a part of a, of a wider um, discussion that is being offered in a workshop that we're delivering with Land for Good on June 15th and 17th, which is um, next week. Today is June 11th. And um, so if you are tuning into this podcast um, pretty much right as it launches, which is great. We're happy to have you here. Um, there is still time to register for, for that workshop session. Um, and so that workshop is called Practicalities and Realities in Farmed Land Law. And it's all about in-depth legal issues surrounding farmland access. So the subject of non-traditional and justice-oriented land access is actually one of six modules that uh, Rachel Armstrong, our executive director at Farm Commons, and Kathy Ruff of Land for Good will be leading. So if you're, again, listening after June 17th, um, you will actually be able to go to our website and watch a recording. But if you're tuning in before, there is still time to register and um, we will drop a link to that registration page in the podcast episode notes. So to kick us off, we'll just start with the basics. Um, in most cases, farming requires access to land. In urban areas, land might mean vacant lots and rooftops or hidden gems of green space. And in semi-urban to rural areas, land can mean acreage from the single digits all the way up to the thousands of acres, depending on which part of the country you're in. So whether you're in town or the country, accessing land can be a tough row to hoe, um, especially if you're just starting out. And so maybe you're a beginning farmer farming for less than 10 years and or you don't fit into the system of patriarchal white property ownership. To paint a more detailed picture of this, um, I'm going to share some quick statistics here on land leasing. And these are pulled from the Economic Research Service um, from the USDA or of the USDA, their department of the USDA. Um, and these statistics are from a 2016 report. So approximately 39% of the 911 million acres of farmland in the contiguous 48 states, so not 
um, including land in Hawaii and Alaska, is rented. And 80% of rented farmland is owned by non-operator landlords. So these landlords own the land, um, but they aren't actively involved in farming. And 84% of acres have been rented to the same tenant for over three years and 41% for over 10 years. And that suggests that access to new land through renting may be limited. And retired farmers also make up 38% of non-operator landlords. And so farmers approaching retirement are more likely to be landlords than young operators. And so the picture that's being painted here seems to me to be that it is you know, kind of hard to find farmland um, to lease. And generally those leasing relationships are wrapped into um, uh, retirement of farmers, older farmers. And so there's a need for that income to, to um, balance out the needs of retirement. And also um, land being owned by non-farmers who may not understand the nuances of farm businesses, but they might, they might have, you know, other family members that have farmed um, and then statistics on land ownership. Of all private US agricultural land, and this is based on a USDA report called Rural America, white owners account for 96% of land and black owners account for just 2%. Hispanic owners account for less than 2% at 1.4% and Native American, Asian and quote unquote other owners combined make up less than 2%. And so to add to that leasing landscape of mostly retired farmers owning and leasing land and non-farmers owning and leasing land, the, the majority of people who own land are white. And so it is a pretty inequitable landscape, a very, very much inequitable much so inequitable landscape. And so white landowners are holding the vast majority of power over farmland in the United States. And so um, myself and Rachel are going to explore in this episode, what are our options forward for achieving social justice and land access? So very big topic. We're going to endeavor to um, begin unpacking in, in about, you know, 30-ish minutes. So I'm um, very, very grateful and excited to um, be having this conversation with you, Rachel. Hey, Rachel, how's it going? Hello. Hi. <laughs> Great subject. Um, I love this one. There's, it's such important work to think about who has access to land, um, what's fair, and how can we make sure that people who want to farm are able to farm and able to farm in a way that, you know, lives out their values, their heritage, their, you know, their history, all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, let's, let's get right into um, what is truly a very values based exploration of non traditional strategies into land access. Right, right. There are a lot of non-traditional strategies out there, and we see more emerging all of the time. Um, we can't cover all of them. Um, so we're going to stick to one theme in today's podcast. Many of the uh, strategies to increase uh, more equitable access to land focus on um, reducing barriers to entry, particularly the total money outlay that's required for any one individual or group of individuals to access land. To put that in, you know, more easily understandable terms, land is expensive. 
It's really expensive to buy. It's even expensive to lease. So how do we reduce those costs that are necessary to, uh, to get onto land? The first thing I want to talk about um, is the most basic idea. Um, if I need money and I need a lot of it, one of the quickest ways for me to get there is to get someone to give me money. So, you know, we can seek a donation. It's pretty expeditious um, and, um, and pretty neat and clean. So some folks have family that can gift them land, and that is terrific. Um, and uh, folks are are you know so fortunate when they are in that kind of position. So there's a few things uh, that we would need to know about the law to make sure a gifting relationship like that goes smoothly, and we're going to talk about those. But before we get to the legal mechanics of gifting land, um, I do want to take a moment to recognize that that a gift from one's family is, is something that a lot of folks do not have access to, um, especially when it comes to historically marginalized communities, BIPOC communities, so Black, Indigenous, people of color, uh, folks who haven't had a history of generational land ownership over the most recent century can't necessarily take advantage of this, of this opportunity. Um, ownership as we, as we know it um, at least in the modern day convention of, you know, fee title ownership um, just has not happened for particular particular communities. We can point out that, you know, native communities have been stewarding the land for centuries um, in, in North America and more broadly, uh, but that uh, that system is now gone and now we have a different system of land title, um, which has, as you mentioned, you know, accrued to 96% of farmland owners being white. So that's going to give you an idea of what family gifting looks like and who's generally in a position to take advantage of that. So folks are looking at that and they're saying, hey, gifting, gifting is great, but you know, let's recognize that it's only happening for some, for some people. So how can we, how can we rectify that? What can we do? How can we seek gifts of land that go to people that don't have those familial relationships? Sometimes, um, you know, these efforts uh, to, to, to seek donations of land are, are directly connected to the history of dispossession in this country, you know, where Black and Native communities especially have been wrongly dispossessed of their land. So organizations and structures are popping up to acknowledge that wrongful dispossession and, um, and move land back into the ownership um, of Native Black communities. Um, so, you know, this is great because these efforts have tremendous potential to right those historical wrongs. But this being a law-oriented podcast, of course, we have to come back around to the legal mechanics. The legal mechanics are relevant to everyone, to every person who is giving a gift and accepting a gift. We know that knowing the legal mechanics can help us gear our approach for success. It can also be very empowering to understand what the law says about gifts. We can use our knowledge, number one, to follow the law, but also to advocate to change the law where we don't like it. So it's such an important exercise for us all to recognize, um, you know, what is the law around gifting? How can um, certain communities use that and how can uh, we change it to make it more optimal? So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, thanks, Rachel, for um, painting that, you know, 
broad sweep of history in terms of who has access to land intergenerationally, who originally stewarded it, and then um, bringing it to today, you know, what what's the most obvious form of trying to um, gather enough resources in order to get land, and that can be a donation, whether of money or land in, in itself, and um, managing uh, the legal mechanics of how that works and the gift tax being being a primary primary way of doing that, being aware of the gift exactly. tax, what it is, how it works, and um, just being on notice that that is a part of the planning of that donation of land or money. Yep. Yep. The donation of land to someone else um, is a gift. The donation of money to someone else for the purpose of buying land um, is generally a gift. And when we're talking about gifts, we're talking about the gift tax. The gift tax is something that is paid by the giver of the gift. So that is the person who has the land first and then gives it away. They have to be concerned about the gift tax. So the gift tax is exactly what it is. It's a tax that the giver of the gift is going to pay to the IRS for the fact that they gave that gift. So of course this doesn't happen um, for every gift. When when I give a gift to my mother for her birthday, I don't, I don't you know, uh, give a percentage to the IRS, um, but that's because I'm giving her a gift worth like 25 bucks. <laughs> so, you know, once we exceed a certain amount, that's when the gift tax kicks, kicks in. So according to the IRS rules, uh, the gift tax exclusion, the amount that you can give before you have to think about the gift tax is there's both a per year basis and a lifetime basis. So you can give the, the, the maximum per year, um, but also once you exceed the lifetime limit, then that per year gift exclusion goes away. So these, um, uh, these thresholds change periodically. So if you're listening to this podcast, you know, in two years, um, you know, Google the gift tax to get your latest rates. Uh, but right now, um, the, the gift tax exclusion is at 15,000 per donor. Um, per recipient. So that's free of tax. So if I technically, if I give my mother a gift worth $16,000, well, then I have actually exceeded, um, you know, my, my value um, for that year. And then I would want to talk to my tax accountant to see what I should do about that. So a married couple, each member of that couple would get the $15,000 exclusion so they could donate $30,000. So my, my tax accountant would probably say, well, don't worry, Rachel, it was technically, technically a gift from you and your spouse, so you get $30,000 to give to your mother. So, you know, uh, a couple could donate land worth $30,000 to one person and then $30,000 to the second person. And maybe those two people are also married. So then that, that married couple gets, you know, a piece of land worth, um, you know, $60,000. So, you know, gift, the gift tax does give us some latitude to, to donate a significant amount of dollars um, or land to other people um, for, for these kinds of purposes. Now, the total giving over a lifetime at this point can't exceed $11.7 per person. So a married couple could double that. So that's, that's a lot. You know, we're getting into our $20,000, or I'm sorry, $20 million um, that one could, um, could gift in this way before we'd have to be terribly concerned about the gift tax. Now, if we exceed that, and that can be possible, um, land is incredibly valuable. This could be, you know, near an urban center. Um, uh, there, 
this couple could have a lot more than 20,000. I'm sorry, keep doing that. I can't conceive of 20 million, I guess, $20 million <laughs> worth of, of land that they want, that they want to gift. At that point, they would have to talk with their their um, accountant um, about the gift tax, and it, it can kick in at tw- anywhere between twenty to eighty percent, um, and that gift change that tax changes with different administrations and things like that. Rachel, so, can I just interrupt you for a minute to um, clarify something? Yeah, yeah. So, and to like make sure I understand this. <laughs> um, so, if a married couple, because each person can give up to 15,000 for the year. If they, if so one spouse gives $15,000 of land and the other spouse gives another $15,000 of land and they give that $30,000 total in value of land for 2021. Um, if, you know, later in 2021, they give away another parcel of land, that's another $15,000. Have like, have they then triggered the gift tax for 2021? or not because they're below the lifetime limit. It's the annual limit and the lifetime limit. So no, they need to stay below the um, below that annual limit. Mm. Okay. Yes. Got it. Yeah. They would have to wait till 2022. Got it. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, there's, there's still a lot of latitude here. Um, you know, some people do have you know, maybe a hundred million dollars worth of land that that they would want to to donate, um, and when that happens, we know that there are those those people. Um, they form a foundation. So a foundation is is the mechanism that 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 uh, people who want to give away their their wealth will generally use because it allows them to give away a lot more without worrying about the gift tax. So that works that works great for their purposes. But there can be a problem that creeps in for, you know, a social justice oriented entity that is trying to um, structure these donations of land and money to return power to disadvantaged communities. Uh, Many foundations are limited only to giving to 501c3 charitable organizations. You know, that's part of how they can put their money into this foundation and then give it away without, without running into gift tax problems. They're limited to 501c3s. So not exclusively, some of them, you know, have some latitude to give outside the 501c to someone other than a 501c3 structure. Um, But, you know, there's more rules that they have to follow about those things. So that can be a a barrier because uh, farming organizations and farmers as individuals often are not organized as a 501c3. They could be a cooperative. It could just be, you know, an individual farm family. So that is a problem that can creep in um, over time if we're trying to use um, donations as as a primary strategy of achieving land access, especially for disadvantaged communities. So we may end up seeing only a small portion of foundation style giving going directly to farmers, farm co-ops and others that are are going to um, use the land to raise food. Yeah, I hear you. I see that. Um, and for someone with uh, with land of substantial value or a lot of land that adds up to a lot of value, the gift ca- the gift tax could be seen as a barrier to making that donation. And so, for folks in that position of giving the land, um, couldn't 
or could they just sell it at a very affordable rate? Like I've, I've heard of several um, land transfer agreements where the owners, you know, gave, you know, quote unquote, gave the land away for $5, a dollar agreement, um, just to have some money pass hands. They wanted the land to go on to um, a next generation um, and others who have sold below market rate. And so, um, let's say that they sign a purchase agreement to sell the land at half its fair market value. Um, what what about that strategy? I don't hear about that so much as often because I feel like if someone's gonna sell close to market value but below it, there, there might still be that interest of getting as much value out of the land um, sale as possible, but it technically is an option. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, if I have land excuse me, that's worth 50,000. And I, I, you know, out of the goodness of my heart, want a person who only has 25,000 to, uh, to be able to buy that because I believe in, in them and I want to see them succeed in farming. It's certainly an option um, that I can sell the land at half of its fair market value. Um, but when we're talking to follow on the heels of the gift tax conversation, you know, the IRS is going to see what's happening there and they have a plan to get us whether we're, whether we're coming or going. Uh, what the IRS is going to do is they're going to look at that transaction and say, hey, you know, cool, you can sell the land for 25000 when it's worth 50000 mm -hmm. but that was a gift. You know, you, you previous owner of the land, gifted $25,000 worth of property to that person because you didn't sell it at fair market value. So then the IRS is gonna say, yep, um, how, about some, uh, how about some gift tax on that overage? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it, uh, it's just something that we, that, we, that we have to be thinking about. Um, selling, selling land at below fair market value, great, but um, we still need to have that gift tax conversation to assess, you know, what is, what is still being, being gifted. As long as the giver of the gift has access to some funds, either to pay that gift tax or, you know, to try to structure that donation differently, you know, to stay under the under the annual minimums and lifetime, um, I'm sorry, under the annual maximum and lifetime maximum, uh, maybe it can still work, but we've got to plan it out. Mm -hmm. Yep. Having a plan is um, proactive and prudent legal risk management. And so I'm now I'm thinking, Rachel, about you know, the other side of the equation. So like on the farmer or farmer's side of things, um, what about raising money? You know, those a farmer or farmers come together, they see this land that they want, they can't, you know, individually afford it on their own. And so they, they band together to raise money from other sources like through crowdfunds. I've seen several of those actually in um, 2020 that did bring in significant funds um, for farmers who specifically shared that, you know, they, are in no position, they don't have intergenerational wealth accrued, there's no land in their family, but they have been farming for years. It's something they wanna dedicate their life's work to and they open up the invitation for, for crowdfunding and they bring in the funds and that's a beautiful, amazing thing. Um, and there's of course also individual donations that may not go through a crowdfunding service or a crowdfunding program. Um, and so those are good strategies that we see and they, they work to bring in the funds to acquire land. Um, and so in whole or in part for the farmer to raise their own money to purchase the land, that is a strategy. But of course there, there are legal considerations um, because those are still 
donations. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. So when we're when we're doing um, crowdfunding or receiving donations, what do we have to think about? Well, it's all about timing and, and documentation. So if I'm a farmer and I'm raising money through crowdfunding or receiving a donation, um, I need to recognize that funds I receive for a business purpose are revenue for the purposes of my uh, tax preparation. Um, it, and how do I know if I'm receiving it for a business purpose? Well, that's in the quality of the transaction itself. You know, it does Aunt Betty come to me and say, love what you're doing with your, with your farm, want your farm to succeed, you know, here's $10,000. Well, I think she gave it to me for a business purpose. Um, you know, if she says, hey, it's your birthday tomorrow, you know, happy 40th, here's $10,000. Um, that's, that's probably personal. So that's a gift. But when we're, when we're talking about crowdfunding, where we're, you know, developing a platform and we're telling our story, we're usually telling it about farming and asking for donations for farming, not for our birthday, for instance. Yeah. So you can recognize from the from the instance, from the situation of the transaction, that this is for a business purpose. And at that point, it's going to be business revenue. And we just, we account for it that way. It's not a problem because, you know, when it comes ultimately to, um, to tax time, we're going to offset our revenue with our expenses to determine what sort of income actually is subject to taxation. So it doesn't mean, you know, you're going to get taxed on $10,000 from Aunt Betty. It just means hey, that's revenue. And just like any business owner, you are going to be strategic in terms of your revenue and your expenses to manage your tax outcome mm -hmm. for that. So, uh, you know, we just have to be cognizant of what sort of a situation we are setting up here, why we're asking people to give us money. Um, and ideally, we're documenting it. When we receive a gift, you know, it, tradition, although some traditions change over time, we just send a thank you note. That's like, hey, Aunt Betty, thanks for the gift. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> you know, and um, and when it's for a, a business purpose or, you know, crowdfunding donation, maybe we would send a thank you from like, you know, Rachel's Green Acres at gmail.com. Like it comes from a business address or it's a thank you that's extended through the crowdfunding platform. You know, it has it has that recognition of being from the business. So these things aren't, um, they're not always black and white, but some common sense is a good, uh, a good you know, rule to follow in trying to determine uh, which is which. So, but uh, all said and done, hey, donations and crowdfunding, awesome strategy if you can do it. Mm -hmm. Yep, especially if you, um... Or a natural born storyteller or you have storytellers in your um, community to help you share your vision for the land and um, bring in that support. So that all makes a lot of sense. Um, and so to continue the conversation about crowdfunding, um, sometimes, you know, I see crowdfunds for, you know, $250,000 to buy land in a, in a state where land is of high value and very expensive. Um, and it works, you know, those those pots of money get filled. But in other cases, more commonly, um, crowdfunding is not enough to close the gap because the price of land is so high for you know many reasons, more than we can get into in this conversation. Um, speculators, real estate, um, the real estate industry, um, you know, many reasons. And so the money for purchase 
may not be there at all. And so if that happens, if there's not enough money coming in to make that purchase, um, you know, folks might wonder, are they out of luck or are there ways that they can still access land and have the benefits of ownership without the huge costs? And um, in terms of gaining that access without the huge costs, I know from friends who have these in place and also our work at Farm Commons supporting farmers who pursue these kinds of lease arrangements, um, long-term leases are one option. But as you know, a person who has leased farmland myself, um, I've been leasing for gosh, almost six years now, I don't get very excited about the opportunity to be stuck in a leasing relationship for the rest of my life. Um, especially, you know, I have an annual lease. Um, I, I have farmed in the past and um, I'm, you know, just itching to plant some perennials, fruit trees, you know, build equity in the land through the soil, through the, the perennials that I establish um, and the infrastructure that I want to put up and all of that. And so I know that's, that's, you know, many more times, you know, almost hundredfold on farms who want to grow their businesses into the long term. So um, I know farmers are wondering, as I did, how do I build equity? Can I really invest in infrastructure on lease land? So um, let's spend some time talking about those long term lease options and what we need to consider um, in approaching them, um, setting them up and um, being a part of that that long term relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, for some folks, it's not even issue an issue of uh, of not being able to afford the land. It could be that land ownership just isn't in line with their objectives or their values, but they still want they still want a long term relationship to the land, and they want an opportunity to see a reward for their investment in it. They want the opportunity to build equity over time, but they don't want that that fee simple ownership. And, you know, finger quotes there, fee simple is, you know, a legal term for when a person has title to, to the land in the most conventional form. So there's a solution. There are ideas um, to, to move forward here. Um, what can happen is that uh, someone else can own the actual ground, but that the farmer can own the buildings on that ground. So in a situation like this, um, most folks use the term ground lease, which indicates that they are leasing the ground, but they actually can have ownership of the buildings and infrastructure that are that are on the ground. So that can be that can be great because if I own the buildings that are on the ground, I have an opportunity to to make investments to improve them. Um, you know, I can put in a really nice pack shed that. Um, that makes farming there so much more effective and, um, and profitable. I could you know, build a better cooler, upgrade the electrical wiring. Um, I, can, I can make investments with my farm income that allow me to, to run a better business and make more profit over time. Then when I get to um, the end of my, my career in farming, um, you know, I'd have the opportunity to be able to sell that, that business and see some money from it. I could also sell the buildings with it, um, not the ground itself, because I don't own that. But um, but you know, I would have that that economic return for everything that I've invested over the course of of my career. Um, so you know, this is a great this is a great option. Um, it can be complex, 
you know, any leasing relationship can be complex. Um, and this one, perhaps a little bit more so because we have to try to distinguish the value of the land as opposed to the value of the buildings. We have to try to separate those, you know, and that's hard to do. Why does the pack shed have value? <laughs> because it's related to this, this fertile ground where I'm going to produce glorious heads of lettuce to then wash in the pack shed. So it's challenging, but it's doable. It's, it's doable and we just need the right team. We probably need to have you know, a business valuation uh, person on board to help us um, distinguish those values. We might have to have an attorney on board as well um, to help us work through um, a nuanced lease like this, help us figure out how to um, assess improved value over time. So anyone who's looking at an opportunity like this would probably want to budget time and money for that process and to help with um, the consultation um, with experts. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, certainly, a, you know, experts deserve reward for, you know, what they bring to the table. But the reason we're talking about this is because we're trying to save money, right? We're talking about a situation where we don't have millions to buy land. And so trying to set aside funds for, um, you know, consultants and experts can can be a challenge. So it's important to to acknowledge the, the complexities of these relationships. It's also important to, to think hard about the relationship with the lease holder. Um, this is fundamentally a leasing relationship with respect to the ground. So who is that other person? Um, it can be a, a, can be a landowner. Um, you know, Farmer Betty, Aunt Betty, she can, um, she can lease me um, 40 acres, but I own the buildings. More often, though, we tend to see these kinds of relationships where the, the leaseholder is a land trust or is an entity that's owned and managed by the community in some other way. So that's great. And then we sign a lease with them. And usually they're controlled by, you know, a board of directors or, or someone else that is representing um, the community's interests. And again, at that point, we have to go back to the role of an attorney um, and some consultants and experts in helping us navigate these relationships. So an attorney can be really useful in that, in that position to make sure that we're thinking about the long-term um, ramifications of, of this relationship. So it's good stuff, it's, it's, it's possible. Um, and there are definitely models out there. Um, if you Google ground lease, um, you can find some terrific uh, models put out by Equity Trust Land for Good um, that'll help you get a start in seeing how these relationships work. Yeah, absolutely. And um, in connection with those ground leases that might be associated with a, um, a trust or a nonprofit with a board that's managing that land, um, long-term leases that are set up by individuals, so a property owner who may have farming background, may not, they may be one of those non-farmer landowners, um, but they have a vision for how they would like the, the land to be stewarded over time. Um, those are also very um, in-depth, intentional uh, relationships that, you know, if, if you're if they're thinking about a five-year or 10-year lease with a farmer and you're the farmer who's thinking about entering in it, um, there's likely going to be significant um, expectations and um, communication that will be in place over the length of that relationship, similar to um, high levels of communication when there's a nonprofit and a board involved in, in that land um, access relationship. So like 
we were mentioning Rachel, you know, we're, we're not trying to um, add in more fees, like working with an attorney to get clear on the ground lease and how it interacts with the ownership of the, the built infrastructure on that property. Um, you know, I think another important consideration for farmers is um, the value of their time, you know, what kind of relationship, um, a land access relationship they're entering into and how much time will it take to steward that relationship um, alongside the time that it will take to steward the farm business. And so I think those are important things to weigh when doing your risk management, your legal risk management, because, you know, the law is, um, essentially, to me, this is my understanding of the law, um, are, are, are written down agreements of what we agree to do for and to each other. And that is, you know, in its essence, a relationship. So good legal risk management um, includes identifying what relationships are at play, how you show up to them, what the expectations are, um, exploring whether they're fair expectations or not, or if you're on the same page. So all of that goes into um, sussing out you know, especially non-traditional land access arrangements, because oftentimes there's there's significant values um, woven into the fabric of how these relationships are set up, whether it's, um, you know, social justice, um, racial equity in the land, um, conservation of ecosystems, um, food access and food apartheid areas, you know, really important values that charge a lot of these relationships. It's why they, they form, how they strengthen and how people are able to um, gather up their resources, financial, land, um, service provider resources, contacts, attorney contacts for that matter, to um, pool together and really support a farm enterprise to get going. Um, and at the same time, it's important to understand how much time all that takes, what the expectations are, and whether they are in line or can become in line with um, your vision as the farmer or farm collective for how you um, will steward your business. So, um, yeah, Absolutely. I think, yeah. yeah. Right, right. And I, I worry sometimes that, that this conversation will be disappointing to, to folks that are craving, you know, a truly transformational mechanism to, um, to think about land differently and to structure it differently in our society and to, um, you know, provide easy, uh, you know, low cost means of, of, of truly um, witnessing justice and the ability to farm for everybody who wants to, um, um, you know, nationwide. And I'm very aware that we're coming to this and we're like, oh, fair market value, oh, attorneys, you know, and it's like, oh my God, more of the same, you know, um, you know, there's nobody is offering me, you know, something something that I can really do in the next like year to live out my dream. And, you know, I want to acknowledge that that's, that's absolutely fair to have those, those feelings and emotions. And, 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 and it is very, it can be very disappointing. None of what we have proposed today um, fundamentally changes the equation in terms of the price of land. The land is still worth fair market value, and that being what a person would pay, you know, for its highest and best use, with which may not be agriculture. I mean, even even a formula that limits um, the value of the land to its agricultural value is still extremely high today. So, you know, no matter which angle we look at this land from, we're still talking about a lot of money and the need to come up with a lot of money. 
And when we're not, when we're talking about somebody else owning the land, we are still talking about a sacrifice of the, the, the virtues and values of property ownership and equity. Now, I, I don't necessarily have, uh, have anything to offer in that case, except to say yes, yes, that is where we are. And that is the circumstances that we, that we find ourselves in. The law sees the land as a vehicle for wealth generation. That is the only way that the law sees land. Um, the law does not recognize the land for its virtues in producing food or fostering a sense of belonging or creating and building heritage and, and building culture. All, all the law sees is wealth, wealth generation and wealth preservation. And that's, that's the only value that the law protects and preserves um, in our legal system. And that's, that's a point that we would want to change. And that is, you know, a, a deep uh, venture. Um, and it's a venture that we can all, um, you know, turn our attention to. Um, but we're talking a generational scale of change, not a next year um, scale of change. So I say that in part to inspire people and turn them to um, a deeper, a deeper elephant, a bigger elephant in the room um, that 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 needs to be needs to be named. Um, for anyone who's really interested in how the law sees land and land ownership, um, one of the books that's been the most influential um, uh, on me is called On Private Property, and it's by Eric Freyfogel. He is a law professor out of Illinois, um, and it's a I just, I couldn't put the book down, um, the bright orange cover, I uh, love it. It's, it's, it's just, it's an amazing, really readable, fascinating history um, of private property ownership in the United States and how the law sees the land um, as wealth generation alone. So, you know, it's not that that's a bad thing that, you know, the laws for wealth generation, it's, it's an incredible resource for generating wealth, but it's worth having a broader social dialogue um, about um, the merits and demerits of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And also creating space for a more expansive understanding of like, what is wealth? Um, what does it entail? Is it purely dollar signs? Or is it other things too, like autonomy, absolutely. heritage, culture, everything you said, Rachel. So um, thanks for mentioning that book. I'm going to put it on my reading list. <laughs> which I am slowly building for the summer um, to sit outside in the sunshine and read. So that's great. And I'll also um, find on private property online and try to put a link into the show notes for anybody else who's interested. Sounds good. Um, adding it to their reading list. I checked to see if it was an audiobook because you know, summertime, um, mm. I don't, I don't think it is, but if anyone finds an audiobook link, they should send it to us. Yeah. Let us know. Info at farmcommons.org. Yep. <laughs> cool. Well, to um, round us out here for our conversation, Rachel, I think, you know, in terms of how debilitating um, the land valuing system and the land access system is in the United States of America, um, a lot of farmers are banding together and creating cooperatives to um, maximize their buying power and also their their collective vision for how wealth can be generated on the land. And so um, moving, kind of bucking the pure private 
property ownership system, but like instead creating a collective um, property ownership system. And so um, we've been hearing a lot of interest in our workshops about farm cooperatives lately. And so I'd love to end with some um, golden nuggets. You know, we don't have an, you know a lot of time to cover in depth farm cooperatives, but um, if we could just leave folks with some high points on what to think about in terms of farm cooperatives, I think that would be um, a hopeful and actionable note to um, close out on. Yeah, yeah, it's a, that's a that's a great angle to think about access to land from. So you know we've recognized that we're probably going to need the sum of fair market value in some way. Um, you know even if somebody's gifting it, they're going to have to pay the, the gift tax. Um, and you know ownership is what ownership ship is. So maybe we can have a cooperative owner. That's great. What I want to emphasize um, is a governance plan. When we have a group of people who, who own land um, collectively, um, it's especially important that we think through how big decisions are made, what happens if the group disagrees, what happens if people want to join the group or, or leave the group. The only reason we don't do this as a matter of course every time multiple people buy land is because we're usually purchasing it together in the context of a marriage relationship. And in the context of a, of, a, of a married relationship, we have marital law to govern how that land is handled in the event that that group splits up. Now, you know, in the context of a cooperative, um, there's not, you know, a, a, a tradition as old as marriage itself about how do we split up that asset um, if the group breaks down. So it becomes yeah, even more important for the group to define for themselves what they want to happen um, in the event that, that things don't work out. Um, you know, and I, I don't mean to be all gloom and doom, like, you know, we're all going to end up in some big fight. No, you know, I mean, people go back to school, people have kids, you know, all kinds of things happen. And we, uh, we want to make sure that those doors are open for everybody, and that those tra transitions um, can be made smooth. So definitely something to keep in mind. Um, an LLC can buy land, a cooperative can buy land. Um, they should have a governance document in place. Um, and then they, they're going to have to work usually with a lender because you know how it is. Usually we're borrowing money um, to be able to afford land. Uh, we have seen instances where um, uh, FSA, Farm Service Agency, um, does extend um, loans, beginning farmer loans, you know, access to buy land to folks who are organized as an LLC um, you know, multiple people who are not married um, coming together to purchase land that way. So it's possible, even though it's not uh, not super common. We usually just see, um, you know, folks who are married and um, would handle the breakup in terms of family law um, to purchase land. Yeah, absolutely. That that governance document is certainly an actionable step that farmers in cooperative. Um, arrangements, whether you've legally formed a cooperative or you're like cooperating together to purchase um, a property. It's an important step to take and um, we actually have some guides to help you in that process, a checklist of questions to ask and explore through, um, both in terms of um, drafting different agreements that are tied, kind of tied together, so lease agreements, um, uh, governance documents for your business structure. And so I'll drop a link to those resources in the show notes. If you are listening and ready, you're like, I'm in that situation. I need to write that governance document. I need to work with my, my business partners um, or land, farmland partners. Maybe that's a new term. We're kind of like 
um, discovering here. <laughs> um, so I will include that in the show notes for you all. So we're um, wrapping up our conversation here, but I would be remiss to end without making mention of another very important um, piece of the land access struggle and situation, um, and also some forming solutions, and that is within the realm of heirs property law. And so that is its whole, whole own um legal mechanic situation that we cover a bit on very generally in podcast episode 27 on racial discrimination and farm law um, and it's very generally speaking a situation where um, there there's a property a farmland property owner um, or any land property owner who does not have a will written up and so when they pass um, their property becomes heirs property and um, typically speculators who are not part of that family will um, prey on those family members to purchase pieces of that family property and then force the sale of the the property in whole thereby removing that property out of the family and this is something that we see um, very typically in in black communities and so um it is racism in farm law and um, there are some really great organizations doing important work educating on heirs property and then also combating it successfully and so organizations to follow in that realm are the land loss prevention project and also farms um, it's an acronym f-a-r-m-s and also because we are um, farm law nerds over <laughs> at Farm Commons. Um, we want to give a big shout out and um, celebratory congratulations to attorney Thomas Mitchell of Texas A&M University, um, who is the principal drafter of a body of legislation called the Uniform Partition of Heirs Property Act um, that was put in place to improve the ability of families who own so-called heirs property to maintain ownership of their properties and preserve their real estate wealth so that they can have intergenerational wealth, they can pass on land to the next generation. Generation. So all of this is tied into um, what Rachel and I have been talking about in terms of accessing land, you know, who gets um, um, boosts early in life. It's usually um, folks who have access to land um, through, you know, white property system means. And so um, we're, we're excited to be seeing these advances in farm law to support um, farmers of all colors and, so, and all backgrounds. So thanks everyone for tuning in. Again, a final plug for the workshop. If you um, tune in before June 15th, that's the workshop that we're hosting with Land for Good called Practicalities and Realities in Farmland Law. And it is an in-depth legal workshop on issues surrounding farmland access, including what we've covered today, but also six other big um, subject areas. And so there will be a link to register in the show notes. Um, and if you're tuning in, in after June 17th, we will have the recording of the workshop available on our website for members. So thanks everyone for tuning in. And thank you so much, Rachel, for this um, really important conversation today. Thanks, Eva. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Farm Commons podcast. 
For more information on what you just heard, as well as a variety of farm law guides, models, checklists, flowcharts, and more, visit our website at farmcommons.org. You can also email us at info at farmcommons.org if you have any questions or comments about this podcast or any of our online materials. Thanks everyone for listening, and keep on growing.